Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 333. Continuing on our uh, development of the English craftsman uh, and woodwork in general. Uh, so it's in, today's episode is going to be uh, dealing with, uh, you know, someone we covered in the past, but we're going to give a little more in-depth coverage on him this time. So uh, we're going to deal with Thomas Chippendale and his famous design book, The Director. So to state the leading facts that in the life of Thomas Chippendale, so far as they concern this inquiry, it is not necessary to enter into any minute detail. He was born in Utley at Yorkshire Village sometime during the early part of 1718. He was baptized on June 8th of that year as the registers show. He was the son of John Chippendale, a joiner, his mother being Mary, the daughter of Thomas Drake and Utley Mason. The Chippendales had married three years before, and the mother did not die until ten years after Thomas was born. So he was, in all probability, not the only child, but we, don't, we do not know this. How far the early Yorkshire years and his father's connections subsequently served Thomas Chippendale in securing for him the patronage of Sir Roland Wynne of Nostal's Priory, or that of Edwin Laskows of Galthrop, afterwards, which would later become Harewood House. So no precise information is available. His work in both houses was done under the superintendence and to the design of Robert Adam, whose influence may have been and probably was more certain than any locally acquired wealthy patronage. Thomas Chippendale married Catherine Redshaw of St. George's Chapel, Hyde Park, on May 19th of 1748. Being then in his 13th year, the following December, he commenced business on his own account in Conduit Street, Longacre. His first shop in London after his arrival from Utley was removing to St. Martin's Lane, not far away in 1753. There is some reason to suppose that Chippendale was financed in his business venture. Since 1754, he published The Gentleman and Cabinet Maker's Director, an expensive folio book of 160 plates engraved on copper and sold for 2.8 pounds, a large price in those days. This assistance may also have been in the form of prepaid subscriptions, but some influence must have been necessary to obtain such sponsors as the Duke of Beaufort and the Earl of Chesterfield, Lords Eversham, Guilford and Gurney, and the Duke of Hamilton and the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Northumberland. To the last named nobleman, the book is dedicated. The director must have been a financial success for Chippendale, as a second edition was called for the following year and the third enlarged in 1762. Some idea may be formed of the size of Chippendale's establishment at this date. From the account in the uh, Chippendale's Gentleman's Magazine of April 1755 of a fire which talks about which a fire that broke out in his workshop in which the chest of 22 workmen were burnt. He must have been in a very large way of business at that date. 
as tool chest would imply cabinet makers only and would take no account of carvers, polishers, or finishers, upholsters, clerks, and other people incidental to such a factory. In 1766, advertisements of a sale of furniture owing to the death of his partner, James Rainey. In 1771, he takes his bookkeeper, Thomas Haig, into partnership, and the bills of the firm are headed Chippendale and Haig until the death of his former in 1779. Two years before that date, he had married again, his second wife being Elizabeth Davis of Fulham. He was buried in the old churchyard of St. Martin's in the Fields, probably the ground on which the present National Gallery is now built. In 1771 and 1772, he furnished the house of David Garrick, the famous actor-manager in the Adelphi, and between 1776 and 1770, he made a considerable amount of furniture for Sir Roland Wynne at Nostril, and in 1770 through 1772, was working at Lansdowne House for the Earl of Shelbourne. Much of the Chippendale furniture at Harewood, none of which is in the director's style, let, let me say that, be it remembered, dates from 1771 to 1775. And in the brief years of his second marriage, he was engaged at Santon Hall, Staffordshire, on work for Nathaniel Ryder. Apart from Chippendale's actual work at the various houses referred to, and at Kenwood, Mersham Hatch, and elsewhere, which is practically all the manner, which is of Robert Adam, the designer, so we know that Chippendale style, if such a style may be said to exist at all, only from the designs in the director. If the man, as a designer, is to be judged, it must be by this book. The first question which arises is, are these designs those of a practical cabinet maker, such as we know Chippendale to have been? The second query may be, are these pieces illustrated in a definite style, and one particular to Chippendale, and may be, therefore, claim any credit for originality. The answer to both questions must be in the negative. As far back as 1909, um, many have formed the idea that Thomas Chippendale did not make the designs from which the director plates were engraved. But I, I the full difficulty as of looking back, uh, of being unable to get behind the personality of the engravers that created those plates. Those acquainted with copper plate engraving of that period will appreciate how radical are the departures from the original in nearly every instance. In their engraved state, very few of the director designs could be realized in wood without serious modification. I mean, so many of what was in the director was so over the edge. But that did not warrant the statement that the original sketches might not have been the work of the practical cabinet maker, rendered impractical only by undone license on the part of the engraver. I had the opportunity, um, in looking through some old text, that in 1925, um, many examined the original drawings from which the director plates were engraved. 
So I think my superstitions of, of doing the research um, were quite confirmed. So these sketches were not the work of one man, the hands of six at least being evident in them. So the account of how many of these original drawings came into the possession of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York reads almost like a romance, it really does. At a sale at Ruxbury Lodge, Claygate, Surrey in October of 1919, two leather-covered scrapbooks containing, containing 207 sketches in pencil, wash and Chinese white were sold. They had the book plate of Baron Foley of Kidminster in each and must have come from his library. The two books were brought for the nominal sum, quite unrecognized, and from London they reached New York somehow and were, brought, were bought by the Metropolitan Museum in 1920. It was only then that the discovery was made that 170 of those sketches were the original drawings from which the director plates were engraved, only a few being missing. Of these, the Victorian and Albert Museum possesses 15, but even then the number is not complete. It is possible that the missing drawings may never have existed as far as Chippendale was concerned. The plates or the proofs being bought outright from other persons at that time. In the third edition, especially, some have this apprentice bearing not only the remote connection to what we know as the Chippendale style. So, you know, after the study, I formed this idea that the director plates were never specially engraved for that book. And even in the face of later evidence, I see no reason to change my opinion. The sketches, or the greater number of them, are admittingly not from the hand of Thomas Chippendale himself. And he must have employed designers from outside, and to a considerable extent, as the drawings date from within a year or two of each other. That is, if he ever sp specifically ordered these sketches at all, or just randomly put them together. So Chippendale could have hardly had six or more draftsmen at one time in his own place of business. So we are asked to believe that Chippendale had all these sketches made to his definite order and that he commissioned the engraving of new copper plates from them, the cost of which had been much considerably formidable. Had the plates been unique, had the director in, inaugurated an entirely new style, the venture might have been worth that the expense, no matter how great the risk. But we know that there is nothing new in the director manner. It is not a style at all, only a jumble of several. So as an advertisement for Chippendale's factory, therefore the director must have been a failure. The system of household taste of Ince and Mayhew was 1763, although one year later than the third edition of the director contains designs of mirror frames which cannot be differentiated from those of Chippendale and the system must have taken years to prepare. Locke and Copeland's ornaments of 1752, Edwards and Darley's Chinese designs of 1754, T. Johnson's designs for picture frames in 1758, his new designs in 1761, all show there is nothing intrinsically original in the director style any more than there is in the catalog 
of the present-day retail furnishing store. So knowing this, recognize that he was using patterns which were common property of his trade at the time. So I cannot believe that Chippendale would have faced all the expenses of original designs, engraved plates, printing, paper, and binding. He had done all this. Had he done all this, he would have taken the greatest care to see that all the designs were thoroughly practical and could have been made as they were drawn. Had Chippendale obtained an order for many of these pieces, which he illustrates, he would have been compelled so greatly to modify his patterns as every maker did who reproduced any of the director plates, that it would have been tantamount to an open confession that designs were the work of other people. Yet, in his preface, Chippendale definitely claims the credit for their authorship. It is significant also that on the preface to the first edition, he cites certain criticisms which must have been made before the book was even issued. So, from the indisputable fact that the pieces were made from the director designs, or subsequently to the publication of the book, which is not quite the same thing, nearly always from, with drastic modifications necessitated by practical considerations, and coupled with this, that some of these pieces were made to the order of persons who figure in the list of the director's subscribers. The curious theory has been advanced that this is a proof of such pieces having been made by Thomas Chippendale. It may be argued, though, that with much greater reason that the evidence may be construed the other way. If we examine the director designs illustrated in his book and compare them with the articles which are actually made from them, one can hardly believe that Chippendale would have any mod- would have modified any of his own patterns to this extent. It would have been too marked a confession, either of want of practical knowledge or of ghosting in the designing business. Let us imagine a pattern such as uh, Paul Methrun of Corsham possessing the director and being uh, deleterious of having one of the pieces illustrated there. What would have been more natural than for him to place his order with a good cabinet maker in his own country of Witcher? In which case, the workman would be certain to point out the impossibility of making the piece as drawn and would insist on altering its design. Good makers abound in the country districts of England during the 18th century. London trained, possibly, but who would return with their own native village or town to seek the patronage of the neighboring great houses. So I found furniture and magnificent examples of craftsmanship and design, say in Norfolk, Yorkshire, Lancashire, and Cheshire, which I have been able to establish as being of local origin. Gillow of Lancaster, for example, was a name second to none at that period, and but for the fact that he did not publish a director or a system, may have been bracketed with Chippendale in his history of English furniture of the middle of the 18th century. The, evid- the evidence against the attribution to Chippendale of these 
director pieces would not have been so overwhelming had Chippendale ever been known to have copied the patterns in his own book. We know that in this was the intention and hope when he published the first edition in 1754. But eight years later, he can point to only one chair, which he says that a set has been made, which gave entire satisfaction. So to the day of his death, he was employed making furniture to the design of Robert and James Adam. And it is not certain that Chippendale never succeeded in popularizing the style which bears his name. There was nothing novel in it, nothing which would have compelled anyone to employ Chippendale instead of another maker. So there is every evidence to show that, while the book may have been a publishing success, as a trade venture or as an attempt to found a new style, the director was a total failure. There is furniture existing and to a considerable amount for which Chippendale invoices exist or where inventory records establish Chippendale authorship. So why is it among all the evidence no single piece of director Chippendale is to be found? The answer is simple. Chippendale could never persuade his patrons, as far as we know them today, to order one of the pieces from his book. They preferred to entrust the designing of Robert Adam and Chippendale, who was certainly a good businessman, put his business ahead of his artistic ideas. And the director, as far as he was concerned, was allowed to sink into oblivion. The style could never have been popular. And that is why so much of what posterity has dubbed Chippendale and so very few of the genuine director pieces exist at the present day that I have seen anyway, possibly only six or the latter. So um, thanks everyone for listening. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.